Section 17 of the Book of Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes. The Book of Wales by Frank Evers Bedard. Chapter 8, Part 3. Ambergris. Ambergris is a well-known product of this whale. Though the name has obviously no connection with this quality, ambergris is a somewhat greasy substance, found floating in the sea or more generally washed ashore. It is a secretion of the intestine of the cachalot, comparable apparently to bezoar stones, the fact that the substance was found to contain the beaks of cuttlefish suggested its origin, which was confirmed by finding it actually in the alimentary canal of a cachalot. When taken from the alimentary canal, the substance is greasy and of a disagreeable smell. After exposure, it hardens and acquires its peculiar sweet earthy odor. From certain chemical facts it has been inferred that ambergris is a biliary concretion closely resembling cholesterol, but its appearance in the whales is pathological and not natural. For those individuals in which it is found were dead or in a sickly condition. Ambergris has been used as a medicine, even as an aphrodisiac. It is now solely used in perfumery. It is mainly used as a vehicle for various perfumes, and it's worth from 15 shilling to 25 shilling per ounce. A piece of ambergris has been found worth no less than 500 pounds. It weighed 130 pounds. A larger piece even than that has been stated to have been in possession of the Dutch East India Company. It weighed 982 pounds. The origin of ambergris was known more or less definitely so long ago as the middle of the 16th century. That is to say, it was known to be the product of a whale though not known to be confined to the sperm whale. A section of Olaus Magnus, Historia de Gentibus Septentrionalibus, is headed Despermate ceti quod ambra dicitur et ejus medicinis. He describes it as found floating in the sea as being of the blue color with a whitish tinge i.e. grey. It is held to be the sperm of the whale and is set down as an excellent remedy for syncope and epilepsy. But in 1672 the Honourable Robert Boyle transcribed the contents of a manuscript found on board a Dutch vessel which asserted that this substance is not the scum or excrement of the whale but issues out of the root of a tree, which tree, howsoever it stands on the land, 
always shoots forth its roots towards the sea, seeking the warmth of it, thereby to deliver the fattest gum that comes out of it, which tree otherwise by its copious fatness might be burnt and destroyed. A curious mingling of truth with inaccuracy is shown in the views upon this substance of Sir Thomas Brown. He describes in the Philosophical Transactions, volume 13, page 193, a sperm whale cast up on the shore of Norfolk. In vain, he writes, it was to rake for ambergris in the paunch of this leviathan as Greenland discoverers, and attests of experience dictate that they sometimes swallow great lumps thereof in the sea, insufferable fetter denying that inquiry. It appears, therefore, that the author of Religio Medici knew that ambergris was found in the alimentary canal of the sperm whale, but thought that it was swallowed by the creature. From this, perhaps, we were derived two alternative views of the nature of ambergris given in Johnson's Dictionary, edition of 1818. It is described as the excrement of birds washed off rocks and swallowed by birds or honeycombs that have fallen into the sea. Physitor macrocephalus lineus, with probable synonyms P. cotodon, Fabricius, P. gibosus, Schreber, P. trampo, Gerard, P. polyclitus, Couch, cotodon australis, Maclei, C. colnetti, Gray, P. Polycephus, Quay and Gaymard, is really the only species that can be satisfactorily allowed. The above list of synonyms shows that there were held to be several species of sperm whales, but we may safely follow Sir William Flower in holding that there is but one species properly definable which is of wide range and may be also of certain variability of outward form. The mysterious high-finned cachalot will be considered a few pages further on. This single species ranges from China to Peru. In fact, it is a denizen of all the oceans. And as a rule, it is found far from land, preferring the deeper waters. This whale cannot be confounded with any other. Its thick blunt head, a third of the length of the body, distinguishes it at once. The muzzle, however, is not so abruptly truncated as is often figured, e.g. by Scammon. It slopes forward two meters beyond the front end of the jaw. The skull, however, does not correspond in form to the head. The whole upper surface of the head is occupied by the case in which lies the spermaceti fluid during the life of the animal. The males of the whale are considerably larger than the females. The size of the former appears, however, to have been exaggerated. Bill G. 
gives from actual measurements 84 feet as the length. But Sir W. Flower thinks that this measurement and similar ones are not always trustworthy, from the fact that there is no indication whether they refer to actual length or are taken along the curves of the body. From a comparison of various skeletons of old animals, it seems that 55 feet, possibly 60, is the outside total length of a male sperm whale. The color of the whale is black, getting gray beneath. The blowhole is single and is described as being of the shape of an italic F. It is placed near the front end of the snout. Underneath the blowhole is a longitudinal groove, the nature of which is obscure. This whale has no defined dorsal fin, but a series of lowish humps, of which the first is the most prominent. The throat has two grooves like those of Ziphides whales. The tail is very deeply cleft terminally, and one flap lies over the other. The sperm whale feeds mainly upon cuttlefish, but fishes have been found to be also eaten. It is said to feed by dropping the huge lower jaw, thereby exhibiting its polished white teeth, which attract within its reach the swimming food while the creature moves along through the ocean's depth. Its food is never apparently composed of larger creatures than bonitos and albicores, but the throat is said to be large enough to swallow a man, and naturally the cachalot has been identified with the whale of Jonah and also with the leviathan of Job. The pectoral fins are not large, measuring about six feet in a full-grown whale. The cachalot will remain under water from 50 minutes to an hour and a quarter. When it spouts, it does so for space of about three seconds, and the column of vapor ejected can be seen from the masthead at a distance of three to five miles. The spouting of the sperm whale can be readily distinguished from that of other whales from the fact that the blowhole is single and the column of breath condensed is also a single fountain, not a double jet as in other whales. Moreover, as the blowhole is situated further forward than in other whales, the jet is not directed upwards but forwards. These characters serve the spouting of a sperm whale to be clearly distinguished. This whale is intertropical in range and is only an accidental visitor to the Arctic regions. It travels in schools. When solitary individuals are seen, such as those which have been rarely cast up on our shores, they seem to be generally old males. This great sea-shouldering whale indulges in a variety of antics. It will leap completely out of the water, coming down with a heavy splash that can be seen from the masthead of a distance of 10 miles. These active leaps are said to be indulged in by the whale for the purpose of 
ridding itself of certain external parasites. The whale will also poke its head out of the water to look or listen, assuming then a perfectly upright position. The great strength of the whale is indicated by its capability of throwing itself out of the water. Mr. Aflalo relates the circumstance of having seen an individual hurl itself out three or four times running. This great strength is sometimes disastrous to the whale fishes. It has been the general belief, remarks Captain Scammon, that the sperm whale is excessively timid. But if this is the general character, there are many exceptions among the larger males, for when attacked they have in repeated instances turned upon their pursuers in the most defiant manner, and their own disfigured jaws, which are their principal weapons of defense, prove that they either engage in desperate contentions with their kind or with some unknown leviathan inhabiting the deep. Moreover, it is, we believe, a well-established fact that ships have been sunk by the deliberate assaults of vicious, grey-headed old cachalots. Captain Scammon gives several instances of such assaults. The creatures butt at the vessel with their massive forehead and have been known to stave a vessel in, but it does not always seem clear whether this is accidental or due to mere confusion on the part of the whale where is a deliberate attack. But there is one instance related where the whale attacked one after another a number of boats which had left the vessel for its capture, giving chase to each. Captain Scammon thinks that in some cases vessels which have been mysteriously lost at sea have been sunk by cachalots. The at least occasional ferocity of cachalots is emphasized by a name given to such whales. They are spoken of as eating whales. It may be that the males, as in so many other kinds of animals, fight for the females, and that the black bulk of a whaling vessel may be mistaken for one of their own kind. The solitary males, which are thus ferocious, may further be comparable to rogue elephants, driven out of the herd by their companions. A species called by Dr. Gray Physitor Tursio, and with many other names, must be mentioned as an appendix to our account of Physitor macrocephalus. Considering that there is not a bone nor even a fragment of a bone that can be proved to have belonged to a specimen of this gigantic animal to be seen in any museum in Europe, it may seem somewhat unnecessary to devote any space to its consideration. Yet so much has been written about this mysterious creature that it cannot be passed by in silence. The species was established on the good faith of Sibald, who was certainly accurate in his accounts of other whales. Thus, there would be a prima 
facie reason for accepting his dicta, improbable though they may sound. This creature, according to him, is a great whale not inferior in size to the cachalot, but differing from it in the presence of a large falcate dorsal fin, and also apparently by the presence of numerous teeth in the both jaws of equal size. One view is that Sibald was deceived by a killer whale into forming this new variety. But though Orca grows to a larger size, none have been recorded of the length of over 50 feet, which is the length assigned to Physiter tursio. The high-finned cachalot, as this dubious whale has been named, is a native of our coasts, if of anywhere, and an example was stated to have been thrown ashore in Orkney in 1687, and other observers have increased the mystery by saying that it often comes ashore in those localities. Since so good a naturalist as the late Mr. Thomas Bell admits this whale into his book of British mammals, we shall allow it a place in the present book. As to this fin, it has been described as presenting the appearance of the mast of a ship, so long and straight it is. In addition to this fin, there are said to be a few low bosses or humps. This, perhaps, is the secret of the mystery. In a stranded cachalot, which I saw at Birchington some months since it appeared to me that the commencement of the dorsal fin was rather higher than is generally represented. A little exaggeration, and we have the high-finned cachalot at once. As to its ferocity, etc., that is just as suitable, according to many, to the ordinary cachalot. La Cepede prefers to call it Fisiter mular and says that it grows to a length of 33 meters. He further remarks that it travels in herds with a leader, the largest of the gamma. This beast leads to the attack or retreat, and, according to a sailor quoted by Anderson, it gives the signal by a terrible cry, of which the echo travels far along the surface of the water, of victory or of precipitate fight. Under the name of Physiter microbes, Lacepede has described a whale no doubt really identical with a cachalot, but which Dr. Gray regards as a high-finned cachalot. It is, remarks Count Lacepede, one of the largest, most cruel, and most dangerous inhabitants of the sea. The suggestion is made that the story of Perseus and Andromeda is based upon a ferocious cachalot and that the orca described by Ariosto, which was to devour Angelica, chained to a rock upon the coast of Brittany, is referable to this creature. There is a story told of the emperor Claudius, who engaged in battle with his praetorian guards, a monster of this species at the port of Ostia. It can hardly be right to refer this animal to anything but the species Physeter macrocephalus, 
for there is no suggestion, except by native Greenlanders, that there are teeth in the upper jaw, and probably these teeth are the rudimentary ones so common in the sperm and Ziphides whales. Still, it is alleged to possess the hypothetical dorsal fin of the mysterious species to be described later. Of this whale in December 1723, 17 examples were thrown up on the shores of the Elbe. A more remarkable stranding of cachalots occurred on the coast of France in the year 1784. On the 13th of March, writes Lacepede, were seen with great surprise a quantity of fishes throwing themselves out of the water onto the shore and a great number of purposes enter the harbour of Andierne. The 14th at 6 o'clock in the morning, the sea was high and the wind blew from the southwest with violence. Extraordinary bellowings were heard towards Cape Estain, which were audible in the country at a distance of more than four kilometres. Two men who were coasting along the shore were seized with a terror when they saw at a little distance some enormous animals which were struggling with violence and attempted to resist the foaming waves which rolled them over and hurled them towards the shore. The fright of the spectators increased when the first of these cetaceans, struggling uselessly with the waves, were thrown on the land. The terror redoubled when they saw them followed by a very large number of these colossal and living cetaceans. There were altogether 32 of the monsters stranded on that occasion. It is a curious fact that the majority of these individuals were females. They had probably sought the shore for breeding purposes. This whale, as is related of so many others, is said to possess a great tenderness for its offspring. As with other whales, but one is born at a time, but occasionally there are two. Extinct Odontocetes. We shall refer here to two extinct cetaceans from the Miocene of Patagonia, of which one at any rate, Physodon, is apparently a physeterid as to other its systematic position is not so plain. Physodon, when it's more fully known, will probably have to be placed in a distinct family, Physodontidae. The general outline of the skull is so much like that of Physeter. It is crested, as in that whale, but the rostrum is shorter, and so comes to resemble that of Kogia. Ascogia appears to be a more ancient type of physeterid than physeter. This likeliness is perhaps of some significance. Its most salient feature is the existence of teeth in both upper and lower jaws. In the upper there are some 22 teeth on each side and 24 on each ramus of the mandible. A noteworthy point is that some of the upper jaw teeth are implanted in the pre-maxillae.
the total length of the skull is about 10 feet, so that it falls short of that of a sperm whale. Argyrocetus patagonicus is mainly known from a skull. This shows that the animals were about as big as the dolphin genus Steno. It shows several archaic characters. In the first place, the occipital condyles, whereon articulates the first vertebra, are in shape more like those of terrestrial mammals instead of being adpressed to the skull, as in the Cetacea generally. The nasal bones, too, are large and well-developed. The rostrum is long and slender. The skull generally is bilaterally symmetrical. It has been pointed out by Mr. Lydica that the fossae upon the maxillary bones are squared and flattened like those of Pontopria. As in the Platanistids, moreover, the cervical vertebrae, or at any rate cervicals, found in association with the skull, are all free and longer than is the rule among more modified Cetacea. The end of the mandible is upturned, smooth and without teeth, and is unlike that of any existing Cetacean. End of section 17 Recording by Mike Botez.